This episode is brought to you by The Prepared Company. The Prepared Company helps wills and estates lawyers by providing a secure, white-label platform to manage and distribute your clients' digital records after they pass away. Passwords, cryptocurrency, photos, legal documents and more, you can now provide a safe and secure way to pass your clients' data while also protecting their privacy. Bring your estate's business into the 21st century with The Prepared Company. Mention the Doing Law Differently podcast for 20% off your business subscription. You're listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Hello, welcome back. You're listening to the Doing Law Differently podcast. I'm Lucy Dickens, and this is the final interview for 2021. In this podcast, I have the pleasure of being joined by David Newman, who is a partner and CEO at Maddox. No doubt you're familiar with Maddox as being one of Australia's leading commercial law firms. A bit more about Dave, he joined Maddox and its restructuring insolvency team in 2000, was appointed as a partner in 2002 and then as CEO in October 2020. Before that, he held numerous leadership positions at Maddox, including practice group head of the corporate and commercial practice and practice team leader of the banking and insolvency practice, as well as serving two terms on the firm's board. So he has a very well-rounded experience of all of the ins and outs of all things Maddox. My conversation with Dave is focused very much on trying to learn more about and understand the culture at Maddox, which is something that they're very well known for. We talk about the firm's guiding value of stewardship and how that plays out day to day, as well as broader topics, including Dave's predictions for the future of the profession, especially in light of the changes that have been brought about by COVID and the potential impending great resignation. As I mentioned before, this is the last interview for 2021, but it felt wrong to leave the episodes hanging at 98 without reaching at least 100. So I'll have two more episodes up my sleeve for you in the coming weeks. So keep an eye out for those. For now, though, let's hit play on the interview. Here is David Newman of Maddox on the Doing Law Differently podcast. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you and learning more about Maddox. And we were saying just before, it was Finn Bowd who introduced us and she set me the challenge of trying to discover what is the Maddox secret sauce, or as you put it, what makes you a great Australian law firm. So I'm willingly accepting that challenge and at least try and see what I can discover about what it is that makes you a great Australian law firm. That's the challenge for the episode today. Excellent. Perhaps the obvious place to start, or it feels like the obvious place to start for me, is with the culture at Maddox. Now, I first learned that your culture was something special back in 2016, and this was when I really kind of became familiar with Maddox. This was at the Alpma conference, and Maddox was the winning entry then in 2016 for the Alpma Thought Leadership Awards in relation to an initiative then that was in relation to flexible working. And I think it was led by Catherine Dunlop. She was there to accept the award anyway. And it was flexible working. And the reason why that stood out to me so much at that time was because I was at that conference with my first daughter, who was five months old at the time, and I'd taken her with me to Melbourne from Perth. And I was like, how's this going to go down at this legal conference? And so I was really just kind of getting into the feel for 
true flexible working and what that looked like for me. So I was really quite excited to see Maddox win the award for flexible working back then. So that was my first introduction to you. And I'm sure flexible working is just one of the things that makes up part of your great culture. Perhaps to understand the culture, you sort of have to, we have to go back a, a, a little way, sort of understand how the firm's evolved. And 20 years ago, or you know, probably 25 or 30 years ago, the firm was a very different firm than, than what it is now. And the partners at that time, and some of those partners are still with us, we're still with the firm, you know, wanted the firm to evolve. It was really a, a firm that had strong roots in a couple of Melbourne families. And I think you know, one of the partners that, that was here when I joined was the first partner to be appointed that wasn't part of one of those families. So it was, it was a very long tradition of families um, being involved in the, in the firm. And in the mid-90s, there was a decision taken by a number of younger partners to really expand the firm. And as part of that, they sat down and agreed a set of values that they wanted to base the firm on. And some of them were value you'd expect to see from a law firm like Integrity. But some of the others were, I think, pretty unique at the time. And there were commitment to doing things better, which is innovation, collaboration, which is a really important part of how we work, diversity. And most importantly, I think it was stewardship and this concept that we're only custodians of the firm for the time being, and that's our obligation as a partner of the firm is to leave the firm in a better place for you know future generations, and not to rape and pillage all the way through and make the most personal gain you can from the organisation while we're here. So those values have really become the touchstone of every decision that the firm has made. And I've, I've before I took on this role, so I've, I've became CEO last October, and I've been prior to that. I've been I've been I've been a firm for twenty years. I've been practice group head of the commercial team. I've been on the board a couple of times. I've led the insolvency team for most of the time I've been here. And the values that we have aren't just on our website. They are actually really inform the decisions that the firm firm makes. So diversity inclusion is is a really strong value that we have. We've been recognised for many, many years about gender inclusion and flexible working, for example. And that's held us in really good stead. Prior to the pandemic, we had an all roles flexible policy and suddenly all roles were flexible, <laughs> whether we liked it or not. So I think that's really been the sort of the cornerstone for our culture. And what, what I really like doing, and it's a, bit, it's a bit like the boiling frog, Lucy, is that you say all these things about your culture, and, but because you live it and you're in it, you're not sure whether you're actually living it. And so whenever someone new starts after about three or four months, I like to ask them, you know, was I full of it? Like when I told you all this, was it? Is, is it, it actually true? true? Yeah. And please, is it true? Is, is what we say about ourselves actually true? And I think it is. And and well, sorry, the feedback I, I usually get that is that it is. And because of the culture that we've we've created and we're really proud of, we really try and protect it. And so when we've grown, so next year marks uh, the twentieth year for our Sydney office and the tenth year for our Canberra office. And so as we've grown from twenty five years ago, you know, about fifteen partners or thereabouts to you know, pushing 100 partners in three offices over that period. We've never merged. And that was a deliberate decision because we didn't want to have to compromise our culture by integrating it with another culture. And we've had you know, lots of approaches and lots of conversations with firms along the way. But ultimately, bringing individual partners in and then growing the interstate offices with partners who want to be part of the firm has worked really well for us. And so we've been able to create a culture but then protect it by growing in that way. This concept of stewardship 
It's really, really interesting. And when you said that to me when we were preparing for this interview, the first thing I liked about it is, wow, I really like that you've chosen a value or, you know, that's kind of your core central value, but it's unique. It's not we value innovation and flexibility and all those things are important to you, but you've chosen a word that sums it up in a unique way. And you don't see that very often. So one, I thought that's cool. And it's now even more special to learn that that word has been around in the business for a very long time. That's not something new that you've come up with. It's this has been our guiding principle for what did you say, 20 odd years or so? Yeah, probably 25 years. And and I think it's and as a guiding principle, it also it then becomes a responsibility and an onus on partners mm. and you know, senior partners like me who were was a senior associate once and a junior partner once as well. It becomes an obligation to actually put that into action. It's not just, you know, to actually bring people through, bring the next generation through to grow the practice so that, you know, people can share in the firm and, and, and come through rather than focused on simply, you know, what you're doing on the day-to-day and focusing on your career. So it's like trying to pick your favourite child, as you, you can understand. But I think if you ask, we all have a favourite, but if you, have to, if, you have, if you ask the partners around here, it, it depends does change. on the day. <laughs> it definitely depends on the day. But I think if you asked the partners perhaps not their favourite, the value that resonates with them the most. I think most would say stewardship because there's that commitment to, you know, the firm continuing on and being better when we've left it. Yeah, and it's bigger than the sum of its parts. You know, it's not about any one partner who might be steering the ship on today. It's about what's the big picture, the ongoing, what are we trying to achieve beyond our personal involvement? And I think it's special and I think it's unique. But I can also see how when you're genuine about that, how that will then reflect into the culture for others, you know, even the people who aren't leading the business day to day, they they are still part of that. They get the benefit of having that leadership and being taken care of. Yeah, hopefully that's what happens. Exactly. Well, that's a kind of a good lead into this this topic that I wanted to ask you about, and that's to explore culture a bit in terms of staff retention. This is always an interesting topic in law firms, but I think especially now in light of we're hearing about the great resignation, I don't know if that's true or likely to play out in Australia or in law firms or any of that, but we're hearing about it. There's, I'm seeing discussions online about is this true? Is this just media hype? Is, is it happening? I think the experience is different over east to it is in WA. But staff retention, regardless of COVID or otherwise, is always an important topic and something that a lot of firms find difficult. It is quite, it can be hard to retain staff. So obviously this stewardship idea kind of plays into it, but just give me your comments about staff retention at Maddox or your reflections about that. Perhaps I, I, I'm not sure when you're going to publish this podcast, Lucy, and it might prove us all wrong if the great resignation happens or doesn't happen, but just my thoughts on that. I think that the experience overseas has been in professional service firms, including law firms, that lawyers aren't going to leave the profession and open biodynamic cheese you know, <laughs> factories in the Swan Valley or surf shops in Byron Bay and you know, coffee shops in you know, Fitzroy Street here in Melbourne. But I think particularly Melbourne and to a lesser extent Sydney and possibly to a lesser extent around the country more generally, I think the last 18 months or so has given people the opportunity to reflect on what's important to them. And whether that's they never really wanted to be a lawyer in the first place and so they're not going to be or trying to find a balance between you know family and work or a hobby or a pastime and work or, or something else that's important to them. Maybe it's a charitable cause or, 
or something of that nature. I think that there is going to be, uh, particularly over these coming summer months, people reflecting on that. And I think things like culture are going to resonate with people and say, well, you know what, I do want to be a lawyer. I actually like being a lawyer and it's it's still a noble profession and something that I want to stick with. But perhaps working in a place that doesn't value me or value my career doesn't see me as sort of central to the organisation, but as part of a big cognitive big machine that's really just churning out billable hours for the benefit of uh, the partners, then you know firms like Maddox, and, and we're not the only one, I don't pretend that for a minute, that who provide that alternate where it's a better place to do law and we, we do law differently to kind of phrase. <laughs> I think that will happen. And I think there'll be a bunch of firms that will be the net beneficiary of that change as people sort of move around and reassess their values. So from a retention perspective, I mean, our retention rates you know, on the various report data we receive are really great. And I think that you know, the most recent data we've seen that we have very strong advocates internally for working here. I think that it's very, the culture is very open and, and, and people have you know, clarity around their roles and do really good work. And I think that balance is really important to strike between not just being a great place to work, but being a great place to do great work. And for type A lawyer types, they want to be working on sexy matters and they want to occasionally, not every night, want to stay up till midnight to close a deal and they want to see their matters referred in the paper. So being able to strike that balance between a nice place to work, which I know sounds a bit hokey, but um, being a good place to work, but also being able to do really great work with really great clients, I think means that people really want to stay here and want to come here. And I think one great test of retention for us is the boomerangs we have, (laughs) the number of people who leave and whether they go overseas for a while or whether they go in-house or some have even gone to our competitors or our peers and they come back because they go, you know, the grass isn't always greener and we actually like it where we Mm -hmm. work. And isn't that a great example on both sides? It shows that you treat them well when they leave. It's not the case that they've resigned and, okay, you're dead to me now, off you go, go work for a competitor. It's we welcome you back with open arms. Even that in itself you don't see all the time. Yeah, we're always a bit surprised that they want to leave in the first place, but, yes, we do welcome them back. (laughs) Speaking of leaving, this is one of the things I was interested in your thoughts on is whether you see any differences between retention rates for junior lawyers versus more senior lawyers. I find that often we're in a much smaller firm. We have a staff of between 15 to 20. But it's quite common for staff or for lawyers to get to sort of the two, three-year mark and want to go and explore, like you say, is the grass greener on the other side? Do you find similar with junior lawyers? Do you think there's any special secret to retaining juniors for the long term? I think it's really difficult. When I graduated at the old article clerkship in the early 90s, we were coming out of a pretty deep recession and we were all pretty lucky to have a job, really. And so our mindset towards our career, it's my peers and the clerks I went through with, we were pretty happy to have a job and we worked hard and built our careers. And none of us are at the firm we did articles at, but we all left, you know, seven, eight, nine years. So we'd been there for quite a while. We left as, as senior associates and made a decision in large part about where we wanted our careers to go and, and made decisions for different reasons. I think certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, there is a perception amongst junior lawyers that they need to move around and that they need to try different things and and do different things in order to find out what they actually want to do. And so trying to keep that cohort and trying to 
attract that cohort is a real challenge. And they're the, you know, they're the lawyers that, you know, when partners come to me and say, Dave, we're under-resourced, I need someone, the next thing they're going to say is, I just need a good third year. It's like, you know, we all do. <laughs> but what I'm really interested in is to see how that will change. My career was shaped in large part by the economic circumstances of the late 80s and early 90s. I'm really interested to see socially how the careers of, you know, the young lawyers coming through, spending two years working at home, how that will shape their careers and whether it will make them stickier, whether it will make them, as soon as the doors open, they're off to London. And and we're now dealing with overseas firms throwing ludicrous amounts of money at young lawyers just to get them over there, just to have bodies to get, get work done. So it's a real challenge to answer your question is to actually keep that cohort. Now, it has been, and I, just, I'm, I don't know whether that's going to change, whether or not the experience of the last two years will change the loyalties that those lawyers have. And it might be that they recognise that they haven't really experienced the practice of the law as it should be because it's all been online. Yes. And as good as Zoom is and Teams is, it really takes away from the experience that you and I would have had coming through as a junior lawyer. And I said to someone the other day that if I write my memoirs, which no one will ever read, so I accept that, <laughs> the 10 best stories I have, none of them will have happened online. Yeah, in front of a video camera. (laughs) Exactly, that won't do. I just know they won't have top 50. And so I think that being able to move from the theoretical to the practical for these younger lawyers is a real challenge for firms. And I think hopefully they'll stick it out for another couple of years at least so that they can actually have those experiences and develop into partners in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a challenge. And I don't know how, like you say, the last two years are going to impact on that. What I try to do here is to encourage people to fulfill those needs without having to get another job to do it. So if someone's really interested in a particular aspect, I don't know, maybe it's innovation in law, help them find a committee to join or an outma or some other thing that is relevant that is not you have to go get a different job to try that out, <laughs> to help them broaden their skills and try those things and realise that there are other ways of doing things. Yeah, that's right. We do similar things. I mean, we have lots of internal committees and we encourage common opportunities always arise. And we have a very strong and, and, and thriving pro bono practice. And so being a, uh, those opportunities to work in areas that provide some meaning and purpose, perhaps you know, beyond you know, some of the corporate aspects of, of what we do. So there's all of those things. But I just think that there's uh, over the last you know 15 years or so, there's been this sort of expectation developing amongst the younger lawyers coming through that they need to have three or four jobs on their CV. You know, if they're seen to have been at the same firm for 10 years, then somehow that's now a black mark, which which might change. I don't know, but I think it's a sector-wide um, issue. Sure. Now, I didn't know I was going to ask you about this, but you mentioned it before we hit record and now I want to know more. And it's that you mentioned you have an innovation week and that's as much as I know. Yeah. And I would like to know more, please. <laughs> Tell us about your innovation week. Yeah, sure. So innovation or, or commitment to doing things better is one of our, our core values. So each year we have an innovation week, which ordinarily, take, ordinarily takes place in the office and we'll have um, our offices and we'll have a speaker each each day or, or maybe two speakers. We'll sometimes have stalls the wrong word, but the, the opportunity to experience technology. So we've had in previous in previous years, we've had sort of 3D virtual reality type things that people can experience during the day and over lunch. And it's really just to get people thinking about what innovation is. And for, and for innovation for us, it's not technology. And that's an easy sort of trap to fall into. For us, we define innovation as being any change, change that adds value to our clients. So we put people through innovation thinking courses. We get people to, we have a competition each, each year um, where we have um, the last few years where we have two 
two different AI platforms work with two groups of junior lawyers. They get given a problem to solve and then they present to, to me and others about how they've solved a problem. And this year was in relation to certain changes to industrial relations law and how they bring that to life on an on AI platform. And so it's getting people to think and, and, and one of the benefits, I guess, of being in lockdown is we've had a, had a huge participation rate this year because people were joining online. And so they get a sandwich at lunchtime at home usually, and you now they could participate in these events, which get people thinking about things beyond the law. And and we we're talking before we started recording about sort of the, the keynote speaker this year was Shane Delia, who, for those people who might be listening in, in Melbourne, would know Provador. And so he started Provador from really the impact that the pandemic had on his restaurant Maha and how he shifted to effectively a, an online logistics company really overnight. And some of the st- statistics he gave were incredible. And again, for those in Melbourne or who are those who've been lucky enough to come down here for our restaurants, there's a restaurant called Supernormal and Supernormal are, are known for these lobster rolls, which are delicious. And they were selling 3,000 lobster rolls a week remotely. They were actually having them delivered, which is extraordinary. Yeah. And so talking to him in the context of innovation and the way he was forced to adapt because of the pandemic was, was really interesting. And, and again, I think really resonated with the staff thinking about, our people thinking about, you know, what can they do to help work with our clients and, and, and do, things, do things differently and better. So you obviously get a lot of engagement and staff want to be involved in those in things like the Innovation Week. It sounds like fun. I want to come and join it for a week. (laughs) (laughs) I'll invite you next year. You're more than welcome. We have things every day. Sometimes we might have a couple of things. Um, I'm okay, I go for half an hour. But if we've got yeah, we have 650 people here. If we get a couple hundred people to a session, that's really great. And that's that's, that's people who are thinking about things beyond the, their day-to-day. And we'll continue to roll out you know, speakers throughout the year just to get people thinking, again, away from the work that might be in front of them so that they're thinking more broadly about you know, what issues are impacting our clients, are there different ways of doing things, which, again, increases that engagement level because you're kind of seeing yourself seeing the work you do in a broader context and not just you know, the, on the sheet. This innovation type mindset is obviously important to you. You've said a couple of times we want to get people thinking in a different way. How can they change what they're doing for their clients? How does that then feed back, or maybe the question is not how, but does it then feed back into things like performance reviews or KPIs or how are you kind of managing or measuring if you are staff performance? So it does in so far that that we do recognise the non-financial contribution that that people make. We don't have strict KPIs around innovation particularly, but when we meet, sit down with our staff and review their performance and look at areas that they could focus on for the coming year and put a personal plan together, then we try and capture the interests or the particulars competencies that person might have in these areas that are beyond the financial. So it's not directly linked to REM in the way that financial KPI might be, but it's certainly really important as part of the discussion we have with our people you know, on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. So do you set goals or themes and we're going to look at your financial performance, but we're also going to be looking at contribution to X, Y, and Z or whatever the goal is that you set together. Yeah, if they want to participate in innovation yes. or if they want to participate in, in other aspects, the sort of non-financial. And and we have a pro bono scheme and will be like B firms in this regard uh, is valued in the same way. So we don't see, um, we, have a, we have a pro bono 
entry effectively in our accounts so that if someone's working on a pro bono matter, they get 100% recognition for the work that they do and you know, there's a, it's, a, it's accounted for separately. And we deal with innovation in the same way. So if a team or if the innovation team or a particular team have an innovation idea or a, a technology solution or something they want to explore and it gets approval in the innovation budget, then it's treated the same way as pro bono. So they can actually spend time putting together you know, whether it's a process map or whether it's actually experimenting with software, whatever it might be, that time becomes credited as part of their normal budget process because you only you encourage the behaviours that you reward. And if we have expectations around people doing pro bono hours or doing innovation and we're not recognising in the same way, then you're really going to encourage just people going back to doing their timesheets, which is not what we want because we're bigger than that and that the firm is bigger than that and those aspects of, of what we do are really important. You've touched on COVID and the impact of the last two years and lockdowns and that kind of thing. Those kind of themes have popped up a few times in this conversation. What do you think are going to be some of the lasting changes or challenges perhaps from that for the legal profession? I think everything out of COVID ultimately is going to be positive. I think that the opportunities for law firms are endless. And I say that for a couple of reasons. I think think that first of all, we've gone through, effectively all gone through a social experiment for the last two years. And everyone in the organisation has an informed view about working flexibly and what works and what doesn't work. And so you can have an informed conversation with somebody about the type of work or the type of arrangements or the type of tasks that would suit a flexible arrangement and how that might work. And those who might be reluctant to approve or engage in that conversation kind of is from a starting point that it can work, but how can it work better? So that's a great opportunity. Technology, I think, has come forward by you know, 10 years. And I think the, the reluctance of you know, senior lawyers particularly to change because we've always done this, always done it this way. It's now been proven that they don't need their secretary sitting in front of their office 24 hours a day. And they don't need the mailroom to actually collate documents and run them down the end of town and get them signed and bring them back and take them down the party and get them signed as well. We've all coped perfectly well. And so we've got this... I think it's not just law firms, like businesses generally have this opportunity to redesign how we work and taking advantage of a, a willingness to change and an acceptance that we can change. So that, that reluctance has, has, has fallen down. I think one of the challenges in all of that, though, is being able to pick what makes it better rather than just because we can. Now, just because we can have this conversation via Zoom, doesn't mean we should. There's there's interactions that should be had in person, and there are tasks that should be done in person. There's there's learning, um, there's mentoring, there's a whole lot of collaboration. That sure it can be done on a screen, but it can't be done as well. And I said to someone this morning, I was in Sydney in a Sydney office on Monday, and I think I probably spoke to 20 people, you know, partners and um, part of the executive team. And some were 10-minute conversations, some for an, for an hour. Most of them were incidental conversations. Some were in my diary. If I wanted to speak to those 20 people online, that's two weeks' work. Yeah. I'd have to try and, have to try and find yeah. you know, all these all, kind of all these half-hour slots. And some of the conversations were really important conversations, but not so important that they're going to call me those, or, 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 or put something in my diary because you know, you're going to talk yourself out of raising, oh, it's just a little thing. I'm not going to trouble Dave with it. So I think that the challenge for us is to be able to say technology works, but technology doesn't fix everything. Technology should, should enable us rather than re- replace the things that, that we can do. So, so I think that's, that's a real challenge. The other thing which I think is really important 
and hopefully it stays. And I don't know, we can have a conversation about this in five years' time. But the word I use for it is intimacy, but and I can't think of a better word, but the relationship between us and our clients and our, co- our peers and our colleagues, and I think it's become a bit kinder, mm-hmm. like we're, we're, we're invited into our clients' homes. They, you know, see us, you know, perhaps not wearing a suit. I see the cats crawling around the background, the kids screaming. And, and I think that that's broken down a whole bunch of barriers and provided a greater level of, of understanding and commitment because you're doing a job for Lucy, who I know because I've seen a cat <laughs> and a kids. And, and so it, it creates a much better personalised relationship. Yeah. And, and hopefully we keep that, that sense of that relationship with the clients because at the end of the day, we all work, act for, you know, we often act for large corporates, but we're really acting for people they're the people who instruct us and they're the people who rely on us and so being able to break that down I think is really important and hopefully that's something that'll that'll stay we've all gone through a pretty difficult experience over the last little, little period I completely agree I think intimacy is a good word to describe that actually on last week's episode Finn and I had a similar conversation about this exact topic and saying exactly what you have about how these barriers have been broken down and people just seem to be a bit more real and it's lovely and as you very rightly said when we first met an hour or so ago I haven't really experienced what you guys have because I live in Perth but I've still seen here that I've seen the same the the willingness to just be a bit more raw a bit more intimate and all the positives that have come as a result of that so I agree I think that's definitely and add a bit more understanding. Yeah. Because you know that your senior associate, they can't get that document to you tonight because you've seen the three kids yeah. that they're wrangling. <laughs> you understand that. And so there's that level of, it takes it from that abstract to the real. Mm. So I think that, that that sort of intimacy and that sort of increased level of kindness, both internally and with the clients, is, is really important. Mm. And hopefully that stays. But. Yeah, I agree. So the question I always finish these conversations on is what advice would you give to someone who wants to do law differently? Let us do it differently. Um, So, (laughs) just get on with it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think just get on with it. I think ultimately it comes down to what the client needs and what the client wants. And there's not one way of doing something. And if you're going to look after your clients, which is what we're here to do ultimately, to help our clients, you know, either transact something, give some advice on um, an issue that they, that's complex or guide them through a dispute. I mean, that's kind of what we do. That's the three buckets it falls into. Then, um, just because that's that, that, that we think this is how we should do something doesn't necessarily mean that's what the client wants, what the client needs, and we shouldn't be constrained about how we do that. And it's really a conversation oftentimes with the client about what they need and what they expect. And I think to the extent that, that we do things differently at Radix, it really is that we put our people at the heart of everything. And remembering that ultimately the community that is the firm is really important to people and that the connection that you know the 650 people have with with where they work extends beyond those 650 people it extends to their family and their children and the, the people they speak to at you know dinner parties about being proud of where they worked where they work and the clients as well and so there's a very big community that that exists around law firms and and being conscious of that i think uh, is a really good start to sort of understanding you know, how these organizations work great well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me. You squeezed me in between travel and and on short notice, and I really appreciate it. It's been lovely to talk to you and get to know more about Maddox and the great Australian law firm. My pleasure, Lucy. It was a lovely talking to you. 
That's all for today's episode of the Doing Law Differently podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to do law differently and you're looking for some guidance and inspiration to help you along the way, then get your hands on my book, It's Time to Do Law Differently, How to Reshape Your Firm and Regain Your Life. You can get it on my website, lucydickens.com.au forward slash book or on Amazon or Booktopia where you'll also find the ebook versions too. Don't forget to leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast and be sure to tell your friends and let other people know too. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.